0: So it is Mother's Day, and uh, boy, with all the it's been it's been one of those mornings I can tell you that. But to get to this point where I can just kind of okay, take a deep breath, and I want to really refocus on Mother's Day, and this is something that we've been doing for years. And, and I got a, a bit finer point put on it, because a friend of mine uh, just a couple of, of weeks ago uh, was, you know, was saying, you know, what are we doing for Mother's Day? And, and I told her that I would be giving a, a message about this idea of Mother God. And her eyes lit up and she said, well, you know what? If you were just going to give roses out to the mothers, I wasn't too interested in coming. But if you're going to talk about that, you know I'm going to be there. And this is something that I think is on so many women's hearts, because for so long, God has been relegated to the masculine, and and by implication to the male, which, you know, somewhere deep down we know that God is not male or female, of course, God is spirit. But on the other hand, this constant hammering of God in the masculine, and the way that the church has operated for 2,000 years, really does a number. And women have felt marginalized for all this time and now we're coming to a time in our in our collective history where there is some equanimity starting to take place in our society why is the church lagging here is the the question is there any support scripturally for mother god is there any support for god as some sort of balance and that's what i want to talk about this morning And and I'm hoping, you know, we've done this for for years now, but maybe let's hear it with some new ears. Let's hear it with some new intensity because, you know, there is this inequality that we really need to take a look at. And if we can do that successfully within ourselves, if we can see how our scripture has never left God as mother, established God as mother, then it's going to help us to right-size and to balance our own lives from the inside out Because a lot of the ill health that we see in our society, that we see in our our families and communities around us, is coming from this imbalance. And if we could get that balance right from the inside out, then we are now a solution and not a bigger part of the problem. A few years ago, another woman asked me, she said, you know, I know that God loves me, but does God like me? You know, I, I and mean, that was such a poignant question. I loved that question. It, it's been with me ever since. Because we have been taught from, you know, All get out that God loves us. But what about this business of liking? Liking is different, right? Liking implies affection. Liking implies genuine delight and pleasure in the other person. Liking implies a playful attenti- attentiveness or attention and a real desire to be with. Liking implies fun, whereas love, not necessarily so, right? Love is something that we've been taught as Christians. Maybe we just got to grind out somehow. We got to obey and do it because we've been commanded to do it. And we have. We've been commanded to love. But notice we've not been commanded to like. Did you ever think about that? Go ahead. Look it up. You're not going to find, you know, I command you to like. Because it's not possible to be commanded. We can't force ourselves or anybody else to like something, you know. I always liked broccoli and bacon, you know. Which one do you think I like, you know, and which one do you think I don't? Did I have any choice in that matter? Absolutely not. I was just born that way. I like one thing. How about you all and your families? You love your family, right? Do you like them all? Come on, be honest. Do you really like them all? And did you make a choice about who you like and who you don't like? Whose company you really enjoy? Who you look forward to coming over and who you don't? No, you know. Now, if we continue to love them, often the liking will follow, but not always. We are not commanded to like, but it is so important us to, for us to know that God likes us. This is why liking is so precious. This is why this woman asked the question. We can choose to love, but we can't choose to like. It's not under our control. If we know that God loves us, why do we doubt that God likes us? Well, I think one of the reasons is, is that we know better than anybody how unlikable we can sometimes be, right? How can God really like me when I know unlikable I am. I think that's one thing. We, we self-doubt ourselves and then we imply that to God. But the other thing is, is that we focus so much on God as father, on God as male. We focus on love as justice rather than compassion. And all of that associates God in heaven with our human father, whose respect is, and approval often we had to earn. It was performance-based. Fathers tend to be more like that than mothers. And so if we had to earn our approval from our human father and we are so focused on God as father, it's a natural, emotional, psychological connection for us to make that we're gonna look at God in the same way. So is that the correct focus? Is that the way that we should be looking at our God? Because what about mom? Is there a mother God in scripture? Is there a mother God in heaven that we can understand, that we can embrace? Now, them's fighting words, right? You know, you say that anywhere other than probably here, and I'm going to have stuff being thrown at me. But here's the thing that we're looking for. Not that we want to change pronouns or change words that we use. That's, That's sort of beside the point. But is there a balance between Father and Mother God? Is there a way that we can understand love beyond simply duty, beyond simply justice? Is there a way that we can understand love that takes us all the way to that playful attention, all the way to that genuine delight and desire to be with? Because emotionally, that's really where we're at. That's what's going to make the biggest impact on us does God like us enough to really want to be with us? If God threw a party, would we be at the top of the list that he wanted there? That's everything to us, rather than just simply a dour choice that we have to make. The language of the scripture points us in a direction, and the truth is that we will never really experience or know God until we admit that God is more than simply Father. Mother God is the intimacy that we need to actually know God. Last week we talked about Lord, Lord, and Jesus said, not all those who call out to me are going to come into the kingdom because so many of them I never knew, never had this intimacy. When we talk about intimate connection, when we talk about that kind of relationship, we're talking about Mother God. And we're never going to know Father God until we know God through mother and the language of scripture is trying to get us there. We've gone through this, just the words themselves in Hebrew point us in a direction. The word for father in Hebrew is ab, two letters, Aleph and Bet in uh, in the Hebrew alphabet. And each letter of the Hebrew alphabet has a name and a meaning. And so Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet means strong or the greatest of, single and solitary. And so, Aleph Bet, the Bet, our letter B, is a house, a home. Literally, Ab means strong house. And the idea of the father in Hebrew thought was that the father was the one who gave the structure, gave the strength to the house, gave, was the provider for the house, made the executive decisions for the house, who actually created the strength of the tent that everyone can gather under. Now, mother, the name is M And we would transliterated as E-M, but E is still Aleph, that same word. It can be pronounced either A or E. So strong and then Mem means water. And it's interesting how our letters still retain some of the early pictographs You know, where the M is still the ripples of the water, as it would be seen. So strong water, what in the world does that mean? Well, when they would tan their hides, they would boil them in large vats. And what came to the surface was a white kind of liquid, which they would scrape off. And they could use it actually as adhesive. It was their glue. Strong water was the glue. The mother was understood as the glue that binds the family together. So the father gives the strength to the house, gives the structure, gives the provision. But the mother is who binds the family together, gives a reason for the strength to be there in the first place. Because without the binding together, without the connection, what does the rest of it mean? So even the words and the letters in Hebrew are pointing us in a certain direction, right? Trying to give us an idea here that there needs to be a balance. On the father side, on the ob side, on the strong house side, we have accomplishment and we have performance. But on the M side, on the strong water side, we have relationship and we have compassion. It's the classic paradox between doing and being, between Martha and Mary, if you will. Remember Martha? She was the busy one running around and upset with her sister Mary who was just sitting at Jesus' feet and soaking it all in. We see that. And that's two women, right? Right? But those attitudes are there. Is it doing that really is the issue? Is it being? Well, no, it's both. Both are critically important. It's not an either-or. It's never an either-or. It's always a both and. Ab and M, father and mother, strong house, strong water, are both necessary and they're complementary to each other. Now, the West, we in the West, we think linearly and we think dualistically. Everything is separated into little pieces. And now with the digital world, we can fine tune that down into little bits and then rearrange and do whatever we want with them. But in the East, especially the ancient East, where our scriptures come from, and the Hebrews are thinking more circularly rather than linearly. They're thinking in terms of circles. They're thinking unitively. Instead of separate things, it's just one thing. And there is a continuum of seeming opposites that takes place here. We've talked in here so many times about taba and bisha, good and evil, but the actual... Root word meanings of taba and bisha are ripe and unripe, and so good and evil are not diametrically opposed, dualistic concepts that are in war with each other, but it's a continuum between unripeness and ripeness, between immaturity and maturity. Nura and heshuka, light and dark, we think of, again, as polar opposites. But to the Hebrew mind, it's more about order and chaos, and the continuum between those two that order can move to chaos and chaos can move back to order. And both are necessary. We need those chaotic times. You as young mothers, you know you need those chaotic times. But they grow into something else. Yama and Layla, night and day, same idea here. Not just sequences between light and dark and day and night, but an idea that during the day you have straight lines that you can see, and this is your time for going out and being productive, but at night you come back in again, and and you consolidate, and you refresh, and the straight lines of energy of the sunlight then transform into the curved energies of wind and sea, and it's dream time, but they both are necessary. We have to alternate the two, or we start to lose something. Male and female is the same way, not hard right and left but a continuum and a complementary mix of energies between the two, cognitive, intuitive, male, female. Father and mother are exactly like this in Hebrew thought. It's a continuum between the two. So what about God? How did the Hebrews think of God if they looked at all of the elements of their lives in this way? Not either or, but both and, unitively, a continuum between the two. Our father, well, what about our mother? Is God neither? Is He both? What is God really? A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the greatest prayer in Israel, which is the Shema, which means to listen to hear. It also means name, and we talked about when the uh, when the Jews pray, Shema Israel. Adonai, Adonai echad. They would hold their right hand over their eyes to not be distracted by the duality and the, the diversity and all the distinction that they see out there so they can concentrate on the oneness of God. But this idea of Echad, this idea of unity, is not just one thing, but multiple things functioning as one. Actually, everything that we see actually functioning as one, that was the idea of God, this oneness. And so, Everything is functioning as one, the attributes of father, the attributes of mother, functioning as one in our God. Strong house, strong water, together as a perfect balance, makes the perfect marriage, makes the perfect parent, if you will. And God is the perfect parent, but understood as this mix, this blending of the two. So is our mother then in scripture? Yeah. Maybe not by name, but take a look at Proverbs 1, starting at verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. And so this idea of wisdom, chokmah in Hebrew, is wisdom personified as female. Wisdom is always female in the scriptures. Ruach, the word for spirit. ruha, in Aramaic, also spirit. Malkuthah, the word for kingdom in Aramaic. Did you know that all those words are feminine nouns? So if we're talking about spirit, we're actually talking about she. The spirit is a she. If we're talking about kingdom, we could more accurately translate it as queendom, and even though the word does not, this word does not appear in the Bible, Shekinah, sometimes you'll hear it as Shekinah, right? It's understood as the presence of God. It comes from a verb that does appear in the, in the scriptures as dwelling. When God came down and dwelt in the tent of meeting, dwelt in the holy of holies of the tabernacle, this was Shekinah. And later on in Judaism, that shekinah was understood as God's presence among us. And it is a feminine word. God's presence is feminine. God's spirit is feminine. God's wisdom is feminine. God's kingdom is feminine. All these words are, we don't see that, of course, because of the way that they're translated. But these are telling us something. That there is a balancing that has to take place in terms of pure experience, in terms of wisdom, in terms of intuition, in terms of relationship, that we balance with intellect and accomplishment and performance. Those two need to be balanced or something gets off. Think about knowledge. Knowledge is accomplished. It's something that we learn. There there are data points and factoids and things that go into our brain. Knowledge is accomplished, but wisdom, has to be experienced. Wisdom has to be lived. It's that deeper knowing when we actually live something out, when we risk something in order to be with. That's wisdom. Wisdom occurs at that point, and we need both. We need the knowledge, but if we don't apply it in our lives, then it will never come home to us as feminine wisdom. We will never have that experience. Take a look at Hosea, chapter 11, starting at verse 1. I love this passage. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them." Could there be a more beautiful image of God as mother caring for us the way a mother does? When you think of the the mothers that spoke to us and they spoke of that that love that they couldn't comprehend for their child and, and how they cared for that child. And you think about your love that is filled with that affection. Here's God speaking to us, speaking to nation Israel about that same affection, that same cherishing attitude. God is often anthropomorphized as female in the scriptures. I'd like to talk about El Shaddai because... It just would, it just kind of tweaks us a little bit, you know, just for free. You know, Leonard Nimoy and, and this, you know, the, the live long and prosper. You know where that comes from? That he, Leonard Nimoy was Jewish, and uh, in the Jewish ceremony, when they are saying the Shema Israel, that prayer we just talked about, the priest will be holding his hands like this, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Echad, Why? because this is the shape of the Hebrew letter Shin. It has these three points to it. And so Nimoy just took that and ran with it. It was kind of an improv thing that he did for Star Trek. But Shaddai is one of the names of God, and it starts with this letter Shin. And Shaddai is usually transferred as the Mighty One. But what it really (laughs) means is and it's going to sound weird, but the great teat. The idea, shad is the word for breast in Hebrew. Shaddai is the name of God as the as the mother who suckles us as children, as infants. El Shaddai, anthropomorphized as a woman, as a, as a mother. And there's so many of these passages in scripture. I just wanted to read just a few of them so you get a taste of it. And uh, he's not going to have time to get them all up, but just take a listen. Hosea, again, just a few chapters later, God is described as a mother bear. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and tear them asunder. In Deuteronomy 32, what's sometimes called the Song of Moses, God is described as a woman who gives birth. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Isaiah 42, God is speaking as a woman in labor. God is saying, for a long time I have held my peace. I have kept myself still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. Isaiah 49, God is comparing himself, herself, to a nursing mother, saying, can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Isaiah 66, God's speaking as a comforting mother. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Psalm 131, David is seeing God as a mother, and he says, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. My soul is like the weaned child that is with me. And moving to the New Testament, here's Jesus at Matthew 23. This is where he's looking out at Jerusalem in that last week of his life, and he understands how everything is going to come crashing down, and he's weeping over the city, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And this is a real common imagery, the idea of the, the mother bird who gathers the chicks under her wings, under her feathers. Deuteronomy 32, like the eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, God spreads wings to catch you and carries you on pinions. Ruth 2, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Psalm 17 keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Psalm 91, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. Now that's an interesting one, did you notice? He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. It's using feminine imagery but with masculine pronouns. So here's kind of the schizophrenia that we get into, right? Here's that balance again. It's a fascinating mix that we see here. But having even read all of those, does the Bible ever directly mention Mother God? And the answer is no, it doesn't. You will not find Mother God anywhere in the Bible. But if the Hebrews understood God as having both masculine and feminine attributes, why not? Why isn't there reference directly to Mother God? Now, one possible reason I wanted to read you from this article um, that is quoting a leading Protestant scholar. And it's a fascinating take. And I think he may have something here. Despite these maternal images, the Bible never used the feminine gender for God and never called God mother. In an ancient patriarchal culture, it's not surprising that the ancient Hebrews used masculine pronouns for God. But we should not take that to suggest that God is masculine or male. According to the Hebrew scholar Samuel Terian, the reason the ancient Hebrews never called God Mother was that they reacted against the allurement of the mother, the mother goddess cult because they somehow sensed the difference between true divinity and deified nature, right? According to Turian, ancient mother goddess worship, unlike modern-day revivals, was never about empowering or glorifying women. It was about glorifying nature with a capital N, Ancient goddess worship didn't arise from a veneration of female humanity, but rather from an identification of the divine with nature itself. In essence, Mother Earth was worshipped as Mother Goddess in these ancient religions that were completely surrounding Israel, as it was leaving Egypt, right, in that, sea, in that area. All the primary attributes of nature, fertility, sexuality, life, health, and death, were associated with the ancient mother goddess cults that surrounded the fledgling nation of Israel as it left Egypt. These re- religions tended to merge sex with religious ecstasy and economic security, agriculture and husbandry. And many of their religious rituals involved sexuality and even temple prostitution. Now, the laws and customs of the Hebrews as they left Egypt steered them onto wholly different paths from the polytheistic and nature religions around them. Instead of a culture focused on death and the afterlife, Israel was focused on life and this present existence Hebrews were forbidden to communicate with the dead, to embalm or mummify their dead. Even to touch a corpse was to become ritually unclean. They fiercely worshipped only one God, and their law prohibited them from making any drawing, sculpture, or representation of their God, who was pure spirit and could not be worshipped through idols. Hebrews were prohibited from all the religious actions of the ancient nature and mystery religions all around them in an attempt to keep them distinct as a culture and focused on their one God. See what's going on here? Trying to keep moving them as far away from the practices of Egypt and these other cultures so that they can stay with their one God. And of course, they did a miserable job of it, you know, right, as you read through Kings and Chronicles. But that was the idea here. The Old Testament silence in calling God mother was not meant to deny God's feminine attributes. It was an attempt to emphasize God's transcendence over nature and to steer the Hebrew tribes away from the ancient goddess religions that overemphasized God in nature and nature as God. At the same time, calling God Father was not meant to imply that God had only masculine attributes or was somehow male. The Old Testament consistently merges the images and metaphors of the strengths and provisions of fatherly love with the motherly compassion and love, as the maternal images above have suggested. This is what's going on here. We are looking through a window at a culture, a fledgling culture that was just establishing itself. And their law and God's direction to them was to take them in a direction that would keep them on this path, when everything would be pulling them in all these different directions. But it wasn't meant to give us the final authoritative certain view of God's nature. This was what they needed to do to stay on their path. But they saw God as both father and mother. And that is amply laid out in scripture, even if it doesn't have the words that we would like to see. But of course, we may be asking ourselves, how can God be both father and mother at the same time? How does that work? My favorite analogy that I pulled out of thin air so you can do whatever you want with it is, is the earth round or flat? Okay, we know the earth is round. But think about it. The earth is round and flat at the same time. The earth is round in fact. I mean, there's, there's no question. Well, I guess there is some question about some French people on the, on, the, on the side there. But the earth is round in fact. But the earth is flat in our day-to-day experience. When you look out, it looks flat. We need it to be flat. Can't build a house on a curve. We build it on the flat. And so we experience it as flat every single day of our lives, but we still know that it's round at the same time. God is strong house. God is just leader, in fact, in our minds, but he's strong water, she's strong water, and compassionate love in life, in our day-to-day experience of life. We experience God as mother in our day-to-day reality, or actually we don't experience God at all. And only, only way that we can actually know Father God is through Mother God in our day-to-day experience, because knowing Yada is about intimate experience, and that's mother. We go through Mother God to get to Father God, God is both mother and father at the same time in the same way that the earth is both round and flat at the same time. Jesus had an intimate relationship with his father. He called him Abba, which is the word that children use. It's about intimacy and it's about affection. It means daddy. And he called him Abba. That was revolutionary. Jesus didn't didn't just see him as the king on the throne at the apex of creation. He saw him as someone into whose lap he could crawl, called him Abba. But you know that he experienced Abba through Ima, through Mommy, through Mary first, and through his day-to-day experience. He had to have, because for Jesus and for all of us, until we experience the intimacy of Mother God, Father God remains distant, far away, scary, Not Abba at all. We have to go through mother. And Jesus always led in all of his interactions with mother, with relationship, with compassion, with acceptance. Then came the teaching. Then came the healing. Then the performance, right? Then came the sin no more. But only after connection had been established because without that connection... We're going to miss the entire point of any learning that we can do. Right at the end of Mark 1 and leading into Mark 2, Jesus encounters three different individuals, and he demonstrates this perfectly. The first one is the leper who cries out to him, if you're willing, you can heal me. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches him. It's the first thing he does. He touches him that broke a ritual boundary. As soon as Jesus touched a leper who had not been declared clean, he was ritually unclean himself. He also risked catching the disease. But he reaches out and he touches him first. Then he heals him. He goes back to his home in Capernaum and it's so crowded that nobody can get in. And so the friends of a paralyzed man start ripping out tiles and beams out of the ceiling and lower him down because it's the only way they can get him in front of him. And when Jesus sees the man, what is the first thing he does? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And his own followers are shocked because he used the word son that he would use as a term of infe- of affection and endearment and connection with them. And he calls this man that he's just meeting son and he says, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say I forgive your sin but he no- he was noting that this man was in such a condition that he had connection he had relationship he had friends that were willing to tear a hole in the roof to get him down to the healer and then he heals him. He broke a theological boundary there, a theological barrier by connecting and declaring forgiveness before anything was done, before this man had the opportunity to say a single word. And then as he's traveling down the street, he passes the toll booth, you know, just like what we have on the 241 or the 133 up here. It's a toll booth. And Matthew's sitting there. They call him Levi. And as he's walking past, he says, hey, come follow me. To have a Hebrew rabbi, a teacher, a dress, a tax collector, a Jew, you have to imagine that Levi popped out like he was on springs, that he would even be given a second glance that wasn't, you know, a death dagger look. And he follows Jesus and he's so excited. He says, will you come and have dinner with me tonight? And Jesus says, sure. Do you know what it means for a pure Jew to enter the house of a tax collector? Oh my gosh. Jesus leads with mother every time. Reread the scriptures. Read what's going on here. Jesus establishes connection. He touches He loves. He shows compassion, acceptance, full acceptance before he heals, before he instructs, before he does anything else. Jesus always leads with mother before father, compassion before justice. And we, all of us, can only be healthy and balanced in our own lives in this order. Compassion must be apprehended before justice in our personal lives. Mother comes before Father. Acceptance comes before the standards of performance that we have to meet for any reason, if we are going to be balanced, if we are going to understand what it means to be fully worthy and able to love as God loves. Now I realize that some of us didn't grow up with a mother's love, unconditional love, didn't grow up with the kind of love that we're describing. and had any sense of the unconditional liking that we're talking about before this earning of acceptance and approval had to kick in. And that's tough. Because without that experience, without that experience of being accepted, liked, loved, just because you're here breathing and for nothing that you did, life is a frightening prospect. Life is difficult. We're always gonna be wondering if we're worthy, we're always wondering if we're good enough yet, because we never experience what it means to just be liked, loved, because we're here. Without that experience, it's hard to imagine that God likes us for no other reason than we're here and we're breathing. Without that experience, it is just difficult for us to hear the words of Jesus and really take them to heart but whoever failed us in life, whether it was our mother or anyone else, God as mother is always available to us. God as mother is always another chance for us to experience what we missed as children, to experience what we may have missed to date. And this is why we here in the effects stress contemplative prayer and contemplative practice. Our minds are the repository for all of the hurt and trauma and neglect and abuse and difficult relationships that we have ever experienced. It's all held there. The abandonment that says we're not good enough. We're not enough to be accepted for who we are. Our minds hold on to all of that. And as long as God is only in our thoughts, only in our minds as a concept, as Father, then he is father only, an ideal that we hold that demands a certain performance of us. But when we silence those thoughts in contemplative prayer, in centering prayer, when we silence those thoughts in mindfulness, when we immerse ourselves in the moments of our lives so that the thoughts just recede, then we're moving out of our headspace and moving into the lived moment the moment that contains the presence, the Shekinah, and there's where we meet Mother God. When we let go of all of the constructs, the structure, the strong house enough to just move into the glue that binds us. For many of us, this experience is going to be the first encounter that we've ever had of mother's love the first encounter of this kind of love that changes everything about our experience, our attitudes, and our understanding of what life is really all about. In Hebrew, there are two words that describe prayer in this particular way. The first word is keva, and the second word is kevana. We need both. Keva is about structure. Kavana is about intention. It's another father-mother breakdown. Take a look at this just and see if this brings it home to you. There's a specific difficulty of Jewish prayer. There are laws, how to pray, when to pray, what to pray. There are fixed times, fixed ways, fixed texts. This structure and routine of prayer is called Keva in Hebrew. On the other hand, prayer is worship of the heart, the outpouring of the soul, an inner devotion called Kavanah in Hebrew, that literally means intention, sincere feeling, or direction of the heart. Jewish prayer is guided by two opposite principles, order and outburst, regularity and spontaneity, uniformity and individuality, law and freedom, a duty and a prerogative, empathy and self-expression, insight and insensitivity, insens- and creed and faith, the word and that which is beyond words. In other words, father and mother, masculine, feminine, intellectual and intuitive. These principles are two poles about which Jewish prayer revolves. Since each of the two moves in the opposite direction, equilibrium can only be maintained if both are of equal force. However, the pole of regularity usually proves to be stronger than the pole of spontaneity, and as a result, there is a perpetual danger of becoming a mere habit, a mechanical performance, an exercise in repetitiousness. The fixed pattern and regularity of our religious services tends to stifle the spontaneity of devotion. Our great problem, therefore, is how not to let the principle of regularity, keva, impair the power of spontaneity, Kavanah. It is a problem that concerns not only prayer, but life as a whole. In prayer, halakha, Jewish law, insists upon the presence of inward attention of kavanah over mere external performance. My Maimonides, a, a 12th century Jewish philosopher, declared that prayer without kavanah is no prayer at all. Whoever has prayed without kavanah ought to pray once more. Those who th- whose thoughts are wandering or occupied with other things need not pray until they have recovered their mental composure. This is, this is a contemplative practice right here. Hence, this is the one you're going to love. On returning from a journey, or if one is weary or distressed, it is forbidden to pray until the mind is composed. The sages said that upon returning from a journey, one should wait three days until rested, and the mind is calm. Then pray. Prayer is not a service of the lips. It's worship of the heart. Words that are the body. Words are the body. Thought is the soul of prayer. If one's mind is occupied with alien thoughts while the tongue moves on, then such prayer is like a body without a soul, a shell without a kernel. And so it is with words of prayer when the heart is absent. Prayer becomes trivial when ceasing to be an act in the soul. The essence of prayer is agadah, inwardness. And yet, it would be a tragic failure not to appreciate what the spirit of Kevah does for prayer, raising it from the level of an occasional experience to that of a permanent covenant. It is through the structure of Keva that we belong to God, not occasionally, intermittently, but essentially, continually. Regularity of prayer is an expression of my belonging which remains valid regardless of whether I'm conscious of it or not. We need both. We need structure and we need intention. We need mind and we need heart. Routine, spontaneity, logic, intuition, duty and playfulness, justice and mercy, loving and liking father and mother. Without both halves of these paradoxes, we're only half a person and we're not living in kingdom. Without father, there is no strength, but without mother, there is no reason for the strength in the first place. Until we embrace God as both father and mother, we're loved and we're lost at the same time because we don't know that we're liked. This paradox, It's one that must never resolve, and that's hard for us. We want to resolve paradox. We want to flop down to one side or another. But God is the oscillation between the poles of the paradox, between father and mother, and that goes on forever. Only in the oscillation do we find the perfect parent, loving and liking in a perfect balance. And Jesus, of course, shows us this most beautifully in the story of the prodigal son. And we sometimes don't know what prodigal means. It means extravagant or wasteful. So the son is prodigal because he went and squandered his father's inheritance. But if you really think about the story, it's not about the prodigal son. It's really about the prodigal father who loved with such extravagance that it just sprayed everywhere and offended and outraged those who weren't ready for it. You know the story, right? Man has two sons. One of them is the spontaneous one. He's the impulsive one. He's the one who's running around like a uh, little guy was, you know, underneath the blinds and doing all. That's the one son. And the other son is the button-down one. He's the one who is all about the routine and all about his duty and doing it just so. Well, the young son gets to the point where he just needs to bust out. He just can't handle it anymore. So he asks his father for his inheritance, which, of course, is a you know an action worthy of death in that culture you did not disrespect your your parents and you didn't in effect wish that they were dead and get your money out of them but the father just gives him the dough just lets him go and he takes off and in no time he's gone through it all he's got no more friends because he's got no way to pay for them anymore and he's living with the pigs in the mud and the excrement and he finally comes to his senses and says what am i doing my father's hired hands live better than this I know, I'm going to go home, but I'm not going to expect to be, you know, offered back my sonship. But I will just ask to be taken in as a hired hand. And so he does. And you can imagine him rehearsing this story all the way back home, right? Thinking it over and over and getting it just right. But as soon as he crests the hill to his father's property and his father sees him, he takes off like a shot, running. Now, Hebrew patriarchs don't run, you know. That's, that's not what they do. It's undignified. He probably had to hike up his robes to be able to do that kind of running. You know, his knobby knees are flashing in the sun, and Hebrew patriarchs, no Hebrew shows their skin. That's immodest, right? But he gets to the sun, and the sun is ready to go into his speech, and before he can get a word out, he is just tackled, basically, by his father, who drapes himself around his son's neck and shoulders. And he kisses him in the language of the gospel, but that's not what the Greek is telling us. The Greek is telling us that he couldn't stop kissing him. He was kissing him over and over and over again. There was just this outpouring. His son was back and he couldn't contain himself. The extravagance of his love was so great, it broke through anything that this boy had done and showered him with his love. And then of course he asks the servants to prepare the feast and his older son who is out working and never stopped working in the fields comes in and asks what's going on and he is angry. He is outraged and confronts his father and the father says, son, you know, what am I to do? Everything I have is yours, always has been. But my son was dead and has come back to life. How often do we not understand what everything means, that everything that God has is already ours, and diminishing someone else's share is not going to give us more than the everything that we already have. But notice what's going on here. The father is perfectly balanced between his two sons, the one son of spontaneity and impulse, of passion, right, of mother and the other one who is about structure and routine and duty and justice, the father. And the two sons never resolve in this story. But the father's actions and the father's love blends them together in a unity of family. Even as the two sons continue to be who they are and staying in this balance, the sons don't resolve. Understand that but are blended in the love that brings them together in this family. It's that unity. It's that connection that is the key to all of this. As I mentioned when we started, women have been subjugated for most of human history. Most of recorded human history has women in a subservient place, and that needs to change. And thank God it is changing. And this message that I've been giving for several years now is just one voice in a growing chorus of voices that are bringing back what we have forgotten, bringing back what our tradition, maybe through either omission or commission, has secreted away. This truth about our God has been both masculine and feminine, mother and father, and it's coming out again. And that's a very liberating thing, not just for women, but for all of us. But here's the caveat. Here's the danger, because becoming liberated doesn't mean to begin wielding Father's power that masculine power in a way that would then subjugate others. See, when I look out at our culture today, at our society today, every side of every issue is trying to wield this father's power to subjugate the other side, push it down so that their side can advance. Every single one of us needs mother balancing every single one of our interactions, whether they're public or private. Because without that matriarchal balance, anything that we do just becomes another patriarchy run amok. No matter what we call it, that's what it becomes if Mother isn't balancing us every step of the way. And if we feel the need to co-opt God to our side, then we've missed the whole point of who God is and we've missed God. But God, both as father and mother, is God's call to co-opt us, to become mirrors of his, of her balance and fullness. And in that balance, even that unresolved paradox becomes one thing that we can live and love and find Jesus in the midst of every moment of every day. Let's pray. Father, this is difficult stuff. Paradox is always difficult. When we've experienced injustice, when we've experienced trauma and abandonment, When the emotions are still clouding our moments, it becomes even more difficult, of course. Help us to try to see through the emotional content. Help us to see through the hurt in order to see who you really are, how you balance, how you are the perfect parent in balancing all these seeming opposites. And if we can at least take the first step, Lord, just to begin to value that balance, to value the compassion that complements the action, that's a first step. Maybe we can just take that one first and see where that leads us. But, Father, day by day, we do want to get closer and closer to you and know you better with each choice we make and each embrace that we experience, that we know that we know that you are there balancing us. Our Father and our Mother, thank you, Lord. Never let us forget we can only do this because you loved first. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.